0: I began my Toronto International Film Festival in the heart of the Annex, where a line of people snaked around the entire block waiting to see the premiere of a documentary about Jane Jacobs, just steps away from the celebrated urbanist's former home. I finished it on the fourth floor of the Tiff Bell Lightbox, staring at a moment in time, captured forever, that tells the story of the humble beginnings of this city. The film has been good to Canadian cities. It employs some of our finest talents both in front of and behind the camera. It draws people to us, Everywhere I look, it seems something is being filmed here. A New York subway station appears mid-block. A killer clown terrorizes Riverdale. The familiar row of orange pylons lining the street. Also, we can sit together in a dark room and share a story. And there's no one on Earth doesn't love a good story. This is Spacing Radio. We're back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and this is the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. The red carpets have been rolled back up, the ticket stubs swept away, but in the wake of TIFF, we're celebrating film in the city and everything that comes with it. Coming up on the show, we talk to a Toronto councillor, Michael Thompson, chair of the Economic Development and Culture Committee, about Toronto's booming film industry. And I was very fortunate to take a tour of a corner of the TIFF Bell lightbox that you may not have heard about, we really have to see. But first, director Matt Turner premiered his new Jane Jacobs doc, Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, at the Bloor Street Cinema this month. We had the pleasure of attending and discussing the film with its creator. Stand by. So first of all, I'll say I loved the film. And uh, listeners to the podcast will be familiar with Jane Jacobs' work and her, her sort of philosophies. But what I really appreciate is you kind of, uh, you, you create this drama between these two very excellently matched characters, a nice David and Goliath character study, which I really appreciated. It.
1: Well, it's Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses. Uh, and uh, you can think of it in David and Goliath terms. Certainly Robert Moses was the most powerful unelected official in arguably in American history. He was called the power broker. And Jane Jacobs uh, came out of nowhere in a lot of ways. She, was a, uh, she didn't have a degree, college degree, and she was a journalist. And uh, very significantly in the 1950s and 60s, she was a woman uh, writing about fields that were virtually closed to women. So here, as journalist comes, writes this ambitious book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, and completely uproots Upends, disorients, uh, paradigm shifts the uh, the um, I won't call it the industry, but the discipline of planning and, by extension, architecture. So she was a watershed, and uh, through her activism in the same period, immediately before and immediately following the publication of the book in 1961, uh, she went up against Robert Moses's uh, draconian plans, which really um, were, were city killing. And uh, she's uh, one of the people, one of the dragon slayers that uh, are said to have brought down Robert Moses.
0: right? And you talked a little bit in introducing the film uh, about what drew you to uh, this particular story and and to Jane Jacobs' work.
1: Yeah, I um, first really found out about Jacobs by seeing her book in a bookstore a few blocks from where she lived in New York, 555 Hudson Street in the West Village. Uh, I'd heard about the book. It's one of those books I, I've heard about that. I always meant to read that. So I did buy it and I read it. And it was just, uh, it floored me. I mean, the voice, the authorial voice in the book is very unique if you've ever read it. If you haven't, of course, I encourage you to. And the way she makes you see the city was, for me, uh, the real takeaway and a revelation. Uh, she explains to you what a city is, and what a city is is something perhaps different than what you thought. Um, and uh, this is, I think, her real triumph in that book. Uh, she gives you a, a way of looking at the world around you, and specifically the city, that makes you see your city differently. And when you see your city differently, I won't say through her eyes, but through the lens that she provides you uh... it becomes uh... something that is a place of networks communities more of a bottom-up city where it's functioning and you see why the top-down city has so many flaws
0: and so what uh, what about this material told you this is a narrative this is a story i can tell
1: uh... no well first of all as a filmmaker uh, you're always looking for things that haven't been done before so no one had made a definitive film about jane jacobs before um, and I thought she was an amazing character. I thought her message was very important and was undertold told cinematically. Uh, you know, architecture and urbanism are of huge interest to the world and of extreme importance in a world that's urbanizing at breakneck pace now. You know the statistics, we're about 50% urbanized. Globally, we'll be almost 100 by the end of the century, people are saying, experts say. Uh, And um, so not only was this a great character, a person of ideas, and a great uh, movie about ideas that had never been made, um, I thought that there was a great character-driven story, which was by adding Robert Moses and looking at a particular period in um, in North American history, uh, which is mid-century, when our cities were changing and being changed in a drastic, uh, way that was thought to be uh... utopian at the time it was really thought to be uh... the answer uh, and it was driven by what i call the white man knows best movement uh... very much the post-world war II command and control method of top down which had won the war and we were going to bring the war in a way to our cities uh, it really was thought about that uh... like thought about in those terms and that proved to be disastrous and i think an interesting historical parallel is the vietnam war which was the same cast of characters who were the white men in charge that won world war II, which was probably the last necessary war um on uh, global war uh, they brought that ethos to the city and urban renewal i think is a manifestation of that same kind of powers that be mentality and in the social housing realm and in the other uh, areas of urban renewal which was uh, driving freeways through downtown urban cores by building towers with setbacks so-called towers in the park uh... destroying the street life of cities um, segregating uses segregating people these were thought to be good things these were progressive ideas uh... in mid-century and uh, jacobs was the first to point out for a mass audience that this was a disaster and a tragedy, really.
2: New York was in its great creative days, um, a place where all kinds of people can find opportunity, a place where you don't have to be big and important and rich or have a great plot of land or a great development scheme or something like that to do something and maybe even do something new. And do something interesting.
0: And still, years later, in many urban centers, uh, despite a lot of momentum in urbanist circles, uh, a lot of Jane's ideas and, and further urbanist thinking, uh, it's still a fight with a lot of cities and municipalities to actually see those uh, philosophies come to life in, in practice.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's frankly, I think, a mess. <laughs> it's it's odd. It's uh, it seems like the intellectual. Um, engine of all of this is very separate from the practice. Uh, Jacobs, I think, won the intellectual argument, Um, not that she changed the academy in every way, but I think she really uh, changed the way that planners think and are taught, for the most part, certainly in the West. Um, Tremendous influence from a single book, really. However, in practice, first of all, she wrote the book in the 50s. It was published in the 60s. Urban Renewal was in like full swing and, and still was going for decades after. Um, so it, the practice took a long time to change. Uh, I interviewed and uh, did research with uh, urbanists and urban planners who are academics who still don't get it. They're still they're resentful of Jacobs. They think that she was an interloper still to this day. It's, it's rather extraordinary. I just want to add that then the developers don't get it. You know, um, they are looking at uh, particular financial formulas that um, still are uh, drawn along Le Corbusier lines, which is the modernist formula for this kind of uh, city um, city destruction and rebuilding, and. Uh, jacobs i think is losing the battle certainly globally and we can also talk about the developing world eventually because that's a, a big problem as well
3: and
0: i wanted to say uh, you know as you know jane jacobs herself in her life had a sort of sequel where she she came to toronto and was a major force here uh, so it was very meaningful that uh, that you would premiere this movie in, in here for the toronto international film festival
1: well we were honored first of all um it's it's arguably the greatest film festival in the world in, in many senses, uh, to be invited is, is an honor in itself. Uh, that, this is the city that Jacobs adopted after leaving New York in 68 and eventually became a Canadian citizen, wrote um, I think eight of her subsequent books in Toronto. Her first book, her first two books were basically written in New York, but I think the rest were written here uh and was a pillar of uh of Canadian culture and uh we had at our premiere um, former mayor David Crombie who was i think in the late 60s uh was a ally of Jacobs she was an ally of his and uh, was instrumental in the Stop Spadina battle uh so having mayor crombie there was really uh, made it even better and that it was at the Bloor Cinema which was around the corner from where Jacobs lived on Albany Street it was it all it all was pretty magical i have to say <laughs>
0: Well, Matt, I want to congratulate you on a great film and thank you so much for talking to me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And if you get a chance to see this film, I strongly recommend it. The name again is Citizen Jane, Battle for the City. Now, the arts and the economy are too often pitted against each other. Counselor Michael Thompson is someone who understands that the two are actually mutually beneficial. A strong art scene is a sign of a healthy city. And I sat down with the councillor in his city hall office to discuss another banner year for the Canadian film industry. Okay, so to start off, uh, Bloomberg.com recently just said that the Toronto film industry is booming.
2: Yes, it is. And uh, we're very pleased uh, that that is, in fact, the case Uh, In fact, though, it's taken a lot of work for us to be where we are today. And uh, an industry by itself is, um, uh, uh, you know, one thing, but an industry that is collaborating with respect to both the municipal level of governments and all the players in the industry um, gives us what we actually have, which is a successful movie industry in the city of Toronto, where twenty-five thousand plus uh, people are actually making an amazing living, uh, where we're generating about one point five billion dollars in terms of filming that's taking place in the city of Toronto. So that's an extraordinarily uh, a, a high number, which we're very pleased. And we have a world-class uh, film festival as well in TIFF. We have an extraordinarily, uh, amazingly um, famous and world-class um, uh, film festival. Which is unique in the sense because this festival not only brings the uh, A-listers and, and so on in the industry, but it also incorporates the people, which really makes the magic happen, right? Without the people, the industry is nothing. The people, their celebration of the stars, a celebration of good um, film Uh, Their education, their understanding of films and the volunteers who actually all brings it together and so on. Um, TIFF is a a Toronto homegrown success, success story started by a few people and has now basically captivated the world.
0: And some of, some of this boom might be attributed to some, some good luck things like a, a low Canadian dollar. But uh, what are the things that the city does to sort of um, facilitate this kind of boom?
2: Yeah, I mean, the city does a whole series of things. First and foremost, we have um, a film commissioner uh, who is responsible with his team. Uh, His happens to be Zabe Sheikh, who's a film commissioner and director of entertainment industries for the city of Toronto. He and his team have done an amazing job. We actually work to ensure that there is a one-stop-shop process when uh, filmmakers come in and their team come in to see the film commissioner, their office. Uh, we help to create a positive relationship between the community, the neighborhood where the filming is taking place, because you, you know that has an impact, whether it's on traffic, on neighborhood, the number of uh, trucks that are uh, in place, the number of people that are in the community, and so on, uh, in the area where the filming is taking place. And so the film office works with the counselor's office where the filming is actually taking place to ensure that. Uh, there is full um, awareness, and as well as there is someone to speak to if any resident actually has any challenges and so on, uh, we make it easy for the um, uh, people industry to come in to to uh, get their permits and so on. Uh, importantly, though, we have the talented um, men and women who work in the uh, industry. The talent's here, and so it makes it easier for those who are coming to film in the city uh, because of the talent is here as well. Uh, Additionally, we have seen over the years that the uh, tax credits that comes from the province uh, uh, have helped immensely uh... so the senior level of governments create the opportunities where those credits are in place uh... and that has helped we've also seen as well film ontario and uh... the collaboration between our city uh... film office and uh... the industry as a whole working well together not only the talent that's here but all of the equipment that uh... the companies need to um, Film to uh, for the sound stage, the equipment's here. We have the studio facilities here as well. And they're world class, so that's extremely important. There's a series of things that creates uh, an, a very healthy environment here for film and television um, that, that's being done in the city. And uh, in, in 2011, it felt like we were having a, a bit of a different
0: conversation. Uh, there was the core service review and uh, and the community partnership investment programs uh, that, that help fund some of these things in the arts. Uh, they were look like they might be on the chopping block. People said no, and there was this argument that the arts is actually very good for, for the city economically.
2: So I've been a, an advocate uh, for the arts uh, in this city for a very, very long time. I think for some, when they look at the uh, culture and the the, the art sector, what they see is a very um, myopic view. It's a very narrow view. They think of it as simply taking resources from uh, that of the city that you could put into other things as well. But what they don't realize is a bigger picture, the enormity of the small investment that we actually make into the art sector and what it actually brings back. But culture is such a positive thing that drives economic benefits, not just for culture's sake, but beyond. So when the conversation in 2011 uh, came forward and and people were saying, well, you know, we should, um, uh, in fact, I know some said we should eliminate the cultural piece because that is a draw on the budget. My advice to those in the room that made that mention to me, I said, well, you know, we have to realize what we're actually doing. We can't cut off our nose to spite our face. I mean, that was the analogy I used, perhaps a crude one, but nonetheless, it was an appropriate analogy in that people didn't see beyond, right, what was actually in front of them. And so what, we, what, what I said at the time and, um, you know, uh, the, the, the community as a whole rallied around this. What I said at the time was that we needed to actually put together a plan for the city. And what we did, we came up with the name Creative Capital Gains. That was actually by a deliberate um, focus on my part to ensure that those who were making decisions understood that culture was not simply about handing out and expecting nothing in return was that it was part of the economic vibrancy and economic benefits that could accrue to the community as a whole if we directed our investment appropriately, if we monitored, if we watched what what um, we were actually uh, putting our resources into and what, what the benefits were. And we made that plan to ensure the investment that we're going to ma- be making at the time led to something. And all of those things have led to today in 2016, where many of those who commented on eliminating uh, the funding for the culture and the arts, right now <laughs> I see them celebrating. The amazing things that are taking place in the city of Toronto. So I think it was, there was a short-sightedness at the time. But the good thing was that there were people of good judgment, good character, who um, said, hey, listen, we need to collaborate and bring our um, intelligence and our understanding of culture and the art sector and what the economic propensity and benefit can be and Bring forward a plan and then stick to that plan and we have stuck to that plan. Plan was a very thoughtful, thorough plan that involved everyone in the community across the city. We had early morning meetings, mid afternoon meetings, late meetings. There were daily meetings that went on because the plan was supposed to have taken um, you know, eighteen months, two years to, to prepare. We got it done in three months and it worked out extremely well.
0: The TIFF Bell Lightbox has quickly become an iconic arts hub in this city, and the centerpiece of the film festival. With excellent programming year-round, there are plenty of reasons to visit. One of the best reasons, however, is that it was built on the site of the first Citizen Hospital in Toronto, which opened its doors in 1829. Throughout the construction of the theatre, Architectural Services Inc. founder Ron Williamson and his team were able to uncover priceless artifacts that paint a picture of early life in Toronto. I sat down with Ron on the fourth floor of the Lightbox, these artifacts are on permanent display. So first of all, Rana, if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and how how you got into a a long career in archaeology.
3: Sure. Um, Well, I was raised in London, Ontario. And when I left high school, I thought, well, what do I want to do? So I decided I would go to Western and uh, maybe get into a pre-law course. I I can't imagine how many people think that as they're leaving high school and they're going to do that. But one of the first courses I took was anthropology. And there was a a professor who was giving a night lecture, a public lecture on archaeology. And at that lecture, he began by saying people were living here 10,000 years ago. And I was literally thrust into a state of shock, because I had never heard that. That is not something that we learned in the curriculum in Ontario at that time. And I thought, wow, I I need to know more about that. And I volunteered at the end of the lecture. I went up to him and volunteered to work in his lab, which I did, and uh, began the process of cataloging this massive private collection that uh, they had. And I learned kind of the ins and outs of Ontario's uh, Indigenous past by by doing that, but just fell in love with archaeology, and it became a life passion. Um, I went on to McGill University to do a master's and PhD, and uh, sometime around uh, I guess it was 1979 or 80. Uh, I was working with some folks from the Ministry of Culture at that time, and the, and the lead asked me to come into his office, and he said, uh, would you like to do a highway study in advance of the construction of the highway and see what archaeological sites are there? And I said, sure. Um, you know, do I have a crew? And he said, no, no, they'll, they'll provide you with a budget. They'll give you, you know, I would guess somewhere in the range of $30,000. Well, in 1980, $30,000 was a lot of money to a graduate student. And I thought, wow. And basically, that particular contract, which I did as an individual, taught me that there was another model outside of the university and museum world for doing research, and that was through cultural resource management. And so I began one of the first uh, few uh, CRM firms in Ontario, cultural resource management firms in Ontario. And at that time also, Ontario was strengthening its legislative mandate for looking at archaeological resources in advance of development. Many municipalities were starting to require assessments. And so we set up and incorporated at exactly the right time, just when these uh, provincial acts, which were the Ontario Planning Act and the Ontario Environmental Assessment Act... Those are the vehicles by which this kind of assessment is done. And it's one of the strongest legislative mandates, actually, in, in North America, if if not the Western Hemisphere.
0: And that kind of takes us to here and now, because we are in the fourth floor of the TIFF Bell Lightbox uh, in front of a, a marvelous display uh, of uh, artifacts that uh, are from what used to be uh, the first civilian hospital in Toronto. And this display was part of an agreement with the city uh to develop here, they, they knew there was reason to believe that there would be significant uh, archaeological discoveries here and, and they could they brought you on board.
3: That's right. Um, the very first thing that was required was an assessment in advance. We knew from the archival record by looking at old maps from the 19th century that this particular lot uh, and actually the two lots to the north of us uh, was what or were the precinct of Toronto's first general hospital, which we thought, wow, I wonder if it's possible anything could have survived. And we did the modeling, um, and one of uh, our staff members is a, is a man named David Robertson, who is a genius at looking at these maps and layering them and identifying those windows where we could excavate, uh, remove the pavement, remove the overburden and get into the soils that would have been present at that time and see if there were uh, remains of the, the, the hospital uh, or associated deposits. And in fact, um, before Tiff laid a, a, a shovel to the ground for this building and this complex, Uh, We were in there, actually, with machines and hand tools, and discovered a portion of the foundation of Toronto's First General Hospital, and we found artifacts that were simply amazing as part of that work. And as we expanded our efforts to the north of of the TIF property, we uncovered pretty much the entire footprint of the hospital complex as it existed uh, in the mid-19th century, Um, In it it was a, a, a stunning archaeological uh, discovery because it covered almost an entire block, but it also told us all sorts of things about early medical practice in Toronto. But probably the most important thing was that in 1847, with the uh, well, with all of the Irish immigration that came across, many ended up with typhus, and when they exited the ships, they were brought to this property uh, if it seemed that they were sick, and they were treated here, and many died here. And so we knew that as we examined the archeological record, well, and the archival record, together with colleagues, Mark McGowan from St. Michael's College, we knew that we had a uh, an opportunity to uh, delve into uh, that awful experience on the part of Irish immigrants in 1847 when they arrived here in more detail with actual archaeological remains. And this certainly wasn't your first rodeo,
0: but it's got to still be exciting as you're going, you know, layer by layer and, and actually discovering these these
3: pieces of history. It is, and, and it's not my first rodeo, or it wasn't my first rodeo, but boy, it's it's you know it's one of the top ones because uh, of the importance of the building, because of the importance of the historical events uh, around it, and uh, our need to commemorate those events. Of course, we have Ireland Park um, at the foot of Bathurst Street, um, and and here we have uh, a very nice display. I'm really glad you're doing this because it needs more exposure. We need to get people to this to see these lovely artifacts. When we do the archaeology, it's not just the artifacts. It's, of course, the archival record before that, it's, it's the actual structural remains we found. And we actually did find wooden flooring. We have found the privies that were used by the hospital. We have found the foundations of the hospital, both on this property and to the north. And so all of that has allowed us far more information about what was happening on this property than we would have ever known just from the archival record. And it seems to me uh, nowadays, a lot of urban archaeology
0: is in the news in Toronto, headline news, uh, I guess, as, as they're developing the waterfront and uh, over in St. Lawrence Market uh, and uh, the ward, uh, St. John's ward. Uh, so why do you, is that part of, uh, partly because of the legislation that you talked about Uh
3: it it is that's why it's happening, and the fact that Toronto has been exceptionally proactive, and in uh, devising and implementing an archaeological management plan for the city that identifies these blocks as requiring archaeology before anything is done on them or along the waterfront in certain areas. So you see all this archaeology. So in the case of the ward, an archaeologist, Timmons Martell, Holly Martell, came in and spent the better part of a year working in that block. But as you know, there's a piece of the legislation that's not quite as strong as we would like it. And that is, what do you do with all of this material? What do you do with all of this information that makes it worthwhile to the general public so me as a historian or my colleagues we gather huge uh, value and benefit from doing this work but frankly the public should as well because it's their history and i think we need we need to strengthen that legislation as we as we watch right now kind of in the headlines as you pointed out the discussion occurring between the ontario government toronto uh, about how should the word be interpreted and how should it be presented. And uh, in major cities in the world, that's a foregone conclusion. You're going to do that, and the public is going to see uh, beautiful displays that, that show you that history, done in artful ways. So there's not a single prescription as to how you do that. In the case of TIFF, uh, there was a, a film made called Death or Canada, that tells the story of the Irish immigration and the events of 1847 and the staff that gave their lives to those patients. And uh, uh, my friend Robert Burns, uh, Robert Kearns I should say, but Robert is with others um, thinking about what is the correct art installation and commemoration that will occur on the properties to the north of us. When we realize that we already have a, a very good Display with these artifacts, uh, with chamber pots and pottery and uh, pipes, and even a amputated fragment, amputated fragment of bone from a leg, that that speaks to that hospital history. Uh, so people can come here in the TIFF building and see that they just need to need to come up to the fourth floor and come in here and and see this material. Uh, but there also needs to be uh, interpretation on the ground, and that's I think the next step on the properties to the north of us that that Robert is is uh, spearheading that effort with the city. So all of this is important. I might add that during our excavation here we found an indigenous spearhead that we believe dates to thousands of years ago, uh, which tells us that that kind of record can sometimes survive right in the middle of a downtown downtown city block, which is exceptionally exciting, but it reminds us uh, of the first inhabitants and in that first 12,000 years of history. So while the obviously the hospital is exceptionally important, so too is that first 12,000 years.
0: Now, let's take a tour of the exhibit. Tough trick to pull off on radio, but we'll do our level best. All right. So the first thing I'm looking at is a. Uh, it's a lot of uh, crockery. Uh, there's a bottle. There. There's some nice-looking uh, blue and white china plates. Uh,
3: yes, these are pieces that relate to the the whole industry of of feeding people at the hospital, um, food and beverage. So these are these are transfer prints, and because the hospital began its operations in the kind of early to mid. 19th century. There's even pearlware here, which is an earlier form of of uh, of ware that that we find. It has a kind of a bluish color, and um, so we're we were happy to see that we have like saucers and we have wine bottles actually one of the things we know about the way in which people were treated the patients were treated was with wine and milk so (laughs) wine was actually a a, a prescribed substance for folks we found one particular vessel that's on display um, that shows you the name of the actual uh, store where this is sold the William Henderson out of Toronto, Ontario, and it's you can actually see the maker's mark right there, and it kind of gives you a little bit of a chill to think, wow, there's there's a, a stamp right off of a place in Toronto from from the 1840s, and here we are finding the archaeological signal of that, you know, so many uh, so many decades later. There are also, of course, large numbers of chamber pots because we're dealing with with patients who couldn't leave their beds to get to the privies, and, and so we, we see all sorts of those. And, and mixed in uh, amongst this part of the display is, is the, uh, the spear point that you talked about uh, that you believe is thousands of years old? Yeah, we, it's, it's, it's um, fragmentary. It's missing its base and a little bit of its tip. And when we find projectile points like that, um, the tip is often broken because that's probably that probably remained in the animal or in the bone in the animal. So what we're looking at is a piece that was retrieved and probably the it's fairly small and I think probably the the hunter thought eh, I'm not I I'm, I can't rework this piece of stone into another finished tool so I'll just abandon it and hence you know 8000 years later we find it it was the only indigenous artifact that we found in out of the entire excavation out of thousands of artifacts and in fact tens of thousands of artifacts when you when you consider the the properties to the north but there was a small creek that went nearby here and we we think that probably this hunter was traveling along that creek and left this left this piece here but as i said earlier it really speaks to this sense of of understanding that 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 whole layer of occupation is below us as well.
0: Right, and it is quite small, so the, you must have been going over this area with a fine-tooth comb.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, the excavation uh, in, I- involves actually gritting off the area, usually in, in one-meter squares, and you actually screen all of the kind of dark... Uh, Uh, paleosols that that are artifact-laden and we actually put that through screens and usually a six millimeter mesh screen so even small artifacts are picked up you don't you don't miss them Now moving over uh, to this other
0: section and I think it speaks to the the immigration that you were talking about the Irish experience coming over uh, there is a lady heart brooch uh, Dublin button
3: yeah, those are objects that obviously speak to the Irish experience at the hospital. The harp brooch is an absolutely stunning piece. You can imagine the excitement on finding that. You, if you're the archaeologist working in a screen and suddenly this gorgeous brooch pops up uh, with an Irish harp on it and you're there because you're thinking about the Irish who were brought to this property and you can imagine what that does as well as actually that Dublin button. Both of those objects uh, elicited quite a response from the field workers when they find it. But there are other artifacts on display here beside them which are uh, tools made out of bone. So for example, there is a a bone toothbrush. Because of course there wasn't plastic back in the early uh, early 19th century and there are uh, combs that are there, regular combs. There's actually a small little lice comb that's on display because Those were the kinds of pests that drove people crazy in these kind of common hospitals at that time. And in fact, in the privy, one interesting find was that we found, um, through some analysis of insect remains, we found bedbugs. And and so um, for those who are, are exceptionally concerned in having to deal with infestations of bedbugs today, so too were people at the hospital in the 1840s.
0: I guess it's comforting to know that we have that link to the past in particular.
3: Uh, well, you know, I think as people have to deal with that, uh, they shouldn't think they're the first to have to deal with it.
0: Then moving over here, um, I found it interesting uh, to, to read uh, from the display that uh, smoking was banned, but you, you discovered a, a lot of, um, they look like
3: clay pipes. They are. They are. They're fairly typical white clay pipes of the period. It's it's always uh, interesting when you find that kind of collection of pipes. We I remember working on a site some years ago, uh, that pipes represented a huge proportion of it, and it turned out we were working on a uh, kind of general store where you could just imagine the scene. Guys were going in and buying these by the gross, and then coming out and and dropping one. And they're very fragile and and abandoning it and moving on to the next pipe. And I think what was happening here is, even though smoking was banned, of course it's an addiction and, and people were and people uh, needed a smoke and so they'd, they'd get it wherever they could and we're finding the evidence of that. The other objects that are, are here are um, things that you would expect to see. So like a hospital bottle that was maybe a chloroform bottle that's been very carefully put together. And if you look at this piece, I've For your listeners, imagine a a piece that's about ten inches high, a bottle, clear bottle, but you know with maybe thirty or forty sherds that have been glued all back together. And what you need to think at the moment is that person working in our lab who's doing a 3D jigsaw puzzle, putting that back together. And you can you can see the product right here as to the product of that labor. But there are also medicine vials and there's medicine bottles, paneled bottles that that uh, go with the period the you know, hospital was being used. There's ointment pots and we have those on display as well as uh, spirit bottles. Um, there's even a child's marble. And things that you know speak to the presence of children at this place as well. Maybe one of the most remarkable artifacts that we found in the deposit though was uh, an amputated femur. Uh, it's from the distal end of the femur, meaning the knee end of the femur. and um, when you come and see this, you'll see that it's been sawn through and what you can see is the actual snap mark where the surgeon got so far and just snapped off the balance. They would have of course tied off the arteries and and but this was a requirement this would, would be something where probably in the lower leg there was an exceptionally serious injury or gangrene or some kind of problem, and you would render a complex wound simple by cutting off the problem, and that's how medicine dealt with those kinds of wounds. We had seen these before in a war of 1812 cemetery in in, in Fort Erie, Ontario, but uh, it it was surprising also or well, not surprising, but it it's always. Uh, fascinating to see this because you can just imagine the scene the patient's on the table the surgeon has the saw which for all intents and purposes looks like today's hacksaws and and uh, probably a nurse holding down the patient and doing with a scalpel cutting through the flesh tying off you know arteries etc and then cutting it right through where the scalpel mark was and then snapping it at the last moment. This artifact in particular reminds you that this was the site of a hospital. Indeed, and it evokes that whole sense of pain, suffering, and death.
0: Friends of Spacing might recognize the name Ron Williamson because he's currently partnering with Spacing Senior Editor John Lawrence in calling for provincial legislation to govern how artifacts are catalogued, studied, and shared with the public. You can read their column in the Toronto Star. This year saw important excavations in St. Lawrence Market and the future Toronto courthouse site on Centre Avenue, located in what was known as the Ward, the city's first immigrant neighbourhood. And that puts a fine point on the need for such legislation. We're really good at digging things up, but if they're secreted away and forgotten, we're missing out on the story. And there's no one on earth doesn't love a good story and that's the show thanks for digging in if you like this podcast please talk about it ad nauseum at after parties a like share and subscribe would really make our day I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley who composes our music and you can hear his music on SoundCloud at track 82 technical support was provided by Pixel Pie Productions that's P-I-X-E-L-P-I dot C-A please hit us up with your questions comments concerns and tips we're on Twitter at SpacingRadio, all one word. Or you can email me at G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West. Oscar Isaac did. Oh my god, you guys, Oscar Isaac, he's from Star Wars. The next issue of Spacing Magazine hits shelves next month and we'll be back then with a fresh episode. See you in the lobby. Cheers. Cheers.